would open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue in the larger series of putting on the new you and the little miniature series that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, and that is walking in holiness, and this is the fourth part that we've looked at in our time together, and we've looked at a lot of different truths that are to be a part of our everyday experience with the Lord, and as we look at walking in holiness and what it means in our passage today, we're reminded of what we looked at last week, where we are to walk in love as an expression of that holiness, and today we look at our challenge to walk as light, as He is the light, and as we have been filled with this light, we are to walk in light, and that walking in light is an extension of the holiness that is to be a part of our life. As we looked at last week, in a continuation of where we've been in chapter 5, we saw that there was a petition in this section of Scripture that commands us to walk in love. It is, walking in love is the denial of ourselves. It is a life that is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, we extend forgiveness to those who have offended us. We have relinquished the right to be wrong and have allowed others the same kind of mercy and cleansing that we have experienced in our relationship with the Lord, allowing us to imitate in some small way the love of God as expressed through Christ on the cross. That kind of love is agape love, and so we are to follow the example that Christ has set for us and how he loved others, and that would be selflessly and sacrificially. Now, set against that agape love, we saw the world's love, we saw this phony and counterfeit love that Paul used to describe, Paul, Paul used these terms to describe this counterfeit love in the words immorality and impurity and greed. And each of these reflect a kind of perversion that has taken place in the world as we think about what love is. Worldly love is centered around our feelings. It's centered around the way someone looks. It's centered around physical attraction and emotions. It's based upon what I want and what I need, what brings me satisfaction, what is pleasurable to me, it completely ignores the needs and the value of the other person. So the contrast of agape love is the world's love, which is lustful and self-indulgent, self-satisfying, and self-serving. So the penalty for those who live that kind of a life, not that you can lose your salvation, but those who live that kind of life have been excluded from the kingdom of God. And it isn't because they have lost their salvation. It's simply because they have never entered into a relationship with Christ or they have made a false profession of faith and have claimed to be covered by the blood of Christ under the cross but have yet chosen to live their lives as they have seen fit. And so those who live in, with a life that is dominated by that counterfeit and that phony love have been excluded from the kingdom of God and when Paul's talking about, he's talking about someone's life that is absolutely dominated by this habitual pattern of immorality and impurity with a greedy desire for more. That brings us into our passage today. So we pick up in verses 7 through 14. So follow along with me as I read. Therefore, based upon what Paul has already said, therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so as we look at these verses today, we'll look at three commands, and we'll look at a common call that will outline what we'll look at today. So as we look at these commands, number one, the first command is to be separate. Verse 7 says, Do not be partakers with them. Do not be partakers of those who are the object of God's wrath, of those who have been excluded from the kingdom of God. There is to be a separateness from those who live a life that is marked by immorality and impurity and would be marked by idolatry as it pursues this counterfeit love. That word partake means to be joined to or with. So when you are partaking with some activity, you are being joined to or you are being joined with that particular activity. We saw this expressed earlier in our study when we learned about the fact that Jew and Gentile had been made one, that we are of the same body. In fact, we are of the same new man. And Ephesians 3, 6 reads like this, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you remember in our study, the Gentiles were excluded from the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. They didn't have an inheritance. They didn't live under the covenant. But through Christ, they had become partakers with the covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel. So in that same sense, when we are participating in the deeds of immorality and impurity and those that would live a life marked by idolatry, we are being joined to or we are being joined with those individuals. That should never, ever be true of the born-again believer in Jesus Christ who claims to be washed in the blood and desires to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. We are not to participate in the sinful activities of those who are outside of Christ, and we are not to be connected to those outside of Christ in such a way that we could be negatively influenced by them. I want to make that very, very clear. If you hang around with a bunch of impure, immoral, idolatrous people, you are more than likely going to begin to adopt some of their values, some of their traits. You're going to entertain their conversations. And we get on this very slippery slope that we can never know how far or how fast we're going to fall. But we need to recognize that we are not to be participants. We are not to be partakers of those who live that kind of lifestyle. We see the same kind of explanation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We read these words together. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be partakers with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul asks asks several rhetorical questions. What fellowship, what do we have in common? And the answer over and over again is absolutely nothing. What do righteousness and unrighteousness have in common? Absolutely nothing. 
We see also in 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, many, many people will say with good intentions, well, you know, I hang around with these people because I want to share the gospel with them. That's a noble thing to do. I want for them to see my love for the Lord. That's a great thing for them to see. I want to be used by God in such a way that they would be drawn to and compelled to consider the truth of He is. That would be a great thing to do. But you need to recognize that if you hang out with, on a regular basis, those who do not share in this regenerating work through the Holy Spirit, you more than likely will fall victim to their bad morals and you can be negatively influenced by that. There's a story years ago, back in the late 80s, early 90s, of an evangelical pastor-preacher who went, who lived in New Orleans and used to frequent Bourbon Street. And his desire was to hang out and to share the gospel and to influence the lost for Christ. And it didn't take for two or three years of hanging out with these people and being in the bars that his position of abstinence became modest embracement to full-fledged activity in, the man became an alcoholic, he lost his position, and nobody's really heard of him since. Bad company corrupts good morals. We are not to be partakers with those who exhibit the life of immorality and impurity and idolatry that we have seen depicted in these verses. So the reason for this command is that we are changed. The reason for us to be separate from is that we have been changed. Verse 8 says that we were formerly darkness. I want you to notice the distinction here. It's not that we were in darkness. We were. But that we were actually darkness. We made up that which was considered evil in the mind of God. We are not in darkness. We are the darkness. Our total existence, apart from Christ was characterized by sin. And a life characterized by sin, metaphorically, is a life of darkness. Everyone who is not born again lives in this spiritual state. It doesn't matter how well-dressed. It doesn't matter how educated. It doesn't matter how seemingly sophisticated these individuals are. If you are outside of Christ and you are controlled by and you are dominated by sin, you are darkness in that spiritual condition. Spiritually speaking, we are either children of God or we are children of the devil. There is no middle ground. We like to think that we can straddle that distinction, but there just is no way to do that. You are either a child of God or you are not. And if you're not, the Bible calls you a child of the devil. Those who are not born again live their lives in the domain of Satan himself. All who are not children of God will spend eternity in that same hell that Satan now indwells. That is the judgment that is upon the unsaved of this world is an excommunication from the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Why would we want to hang out with and join ourselves to people that spiritually we have nothing in common with? doesn't mean that we forsake every unseen friend. It means that we need to be intentional with those who are in our life that are not Christians so that we can influence them 
and it not be reversed, and we see our spiritual integrity slip away as we allow our position to be whittled away over time. I want you to notice the contrast here and the fact that we were darkness. So the contrast here is that we were darkness, but now we have been transformed from darkness to light. We were darkness, verse 8 continues, but now you are light in the Lord. Where we used to be darkness and the domain of darkness, now we have been decreed to be light and we are in the domain of light. Jesus would express this in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. You see, we are the light. We are not the source of the light. We simply reflect the light of Christ that is now in us. We share of his nature because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we are to reflect His light in this world. Rather than being partakers of the immoral and the impure and the idolater, we are to reflect light upon the lifestyle so that God's righteousness brings conviction to those who are outside of Christ. This expression, this teaching that we see in Matthew 5, is exactly what we have in mind here when we're looking at our verses here in chapter 5. We're no longer dominated. We're no longer controlled by the influence of sin. We have been spiritually changed and we have been transformed into the kingdom of light. And through that transformation, we who were darkness are now declared to be the light of the Lord. Because we have been changed, we are given this very important command. The second command here is be light. Be light. Don't be a shadow. Don't be a figure lurking in the background. Certainly don't partake in darkness. Be light. Verse 8 ends with this, walk as children of light. That word walk always means to live your life. Conduct yourself. We are to conduct ourselves as children of light. We are told to live in such a way as to reflect the light of Christ, to reflect who we truly are, our new spiritual standing, our new union with Christ, this life that is no longer dominated and controlled by sin is now dominated and controlled by Jesus Christ himself. And my friend, when that happens, our vocabulary changes, our attitudes change, our activities change, our desires change, and when you hang around with that old group of people, it ought to feel awkward. It ought to feel like we don't belong. That's what it means to be walking in the light, to no longer be controlled and influenced by sin. So we talk about walking as light. There's two aspects of light as we look at this from a biblical perspective. Number one, there is an intellectual light. The intellectual light is is implicated in what we understand to be biblical truth. It's what we know to be true. It's what we believe in. And we are a people of the word, and we will proudly hold our Bibles up and say, I believe that every word is straight from the heart of God. I believe that every word has authority over my life. I believe that my life will be better if I submit to the authority of the Lord. And so we have this intellectual light, the truth of God's word, 
which illuminates our path and shows us the right way that we are to live. We claim verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for this reason, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let me ask you this question. If we are partakers of the immoral and the impure lifestyle, how can we be being prepared for every good work? If our life is reacquainted with the sin that we've been set free from, and if we are giving ourselves over to that former kind of life, how are we ever going to do the work that God has equipped us to be able to do through the transforming work of his work? Well, the obvious answer to that is we just, we just can't. bigger question is do we want to do the work that God has prepared for us to do so as a contrast to this light, to the illumination of truth that we have, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as, as Paul speaks of the loss, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of light. Those people who are darkness, who are participating in this life of immorality and purity, they have been blinded to the light. You may, you may not be able to illuminate their lives through the work of the Holy Spirit in you. But the reality is this. We are light. We are to reflect His light. Light is the intellectual truth that we know that comes from the Bible. The second aspect of light here is the moral light, and that is the light of holiness. It is how we live our lives. It is how we reflect that light. It is a life that is to be marked by holiness. First Peter 1.15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Let's be clear. That's an ongoing, never-ending pursuit for us to become holy. Positionally in Christ, we're already perfected. Practically, as we continue to work out our sanctification, we are a continual work in progress. We will never fully arrive at holiness, but we can reflect some of the holiness of God. That's what it means to imitate Him. It is to reflect His holiness in this lost and in this darkened world. We also see in Romans chapter 13, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. We see the contrast between a life that is marked by darkness, a life that is marked by light, unrighteousness and righteousness, holiness and unholiness. We are given this command to walk in the light. And now Paul explains what being light does in our lives. If we are called the light, Paul now explains what that means. So the explanation is very simply this. Light produces fruit. Light produces fruit. Look what it says in verse 9. For the fruit of the light, the light, the byproduct of light, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. 
light produces fruit. Letter A, the evidence, the first part of fruit is the evidence of saving faith. In a generic way, it means all of these words. It means goodness. It means righteousness. It means truth. It it is the spiritual virtues, the spiritual qualities. It is the fruit of the Spirit. That's what light produces in us. It is the spiritual virtues that the flesh, our old darkened lifestyle, can never produce that we cannot produce on our own. So evidence of saving faith, we sometimes look for evidence in things like church membership and church attendance and religious activity and whether or not someone gives and whether or not someone serves and other kinds of religious activity. And those are important things. But make no mistake about it, those things can be done apart from the transforming work of Jesus Christ. But these virtues, goodness, righteousness, these are virtues that are the byproduct of walking with Christ. Goodness means relational excellence. That word goodness is derived from the word agape. The Greek word is agathosune. And what it means is that we relate to one another in a way that resembles agape kind of love. It's doing the right thing for others. It's doing the right thing to others. That which is done willingly and sacrificially without any interest in what might come back to me. It is a pure kind of relationship that looks out for the best interests of the other person. That word righteousness very simply means godliness. It is upright living. It is a life that is, it is increasingly reflecting the holiness of God. Not a life that is marked by sin and immorality and purity and etc. The virtue here is truth and it means personal integrity. It is trustworthiness. It is honesty. It is a life that is lived consistently in the public life as it is in the private eye. The man is the same. The woman is the same regardless of where they are, regardless of who's around. That's what it means to have this virtue of truth. All Christians produce fruit. We produce fruit in varying degrees and in varying ways, but it's consistent that we will always bear fruit. When we fall into sin, when we give ourselves over to those things that we have been set free from, our fruitfulness will be greatly affected by that. We will be affected in how we think, how we live, what our values are, what we do, apathy in our spiritual life, disinterest in the things of God. And so these virtues continue to move us forward in our walk with the Lord. The fruit of light is what we're talking about here. Secondly, you have there be the fruit of lordship. Not only is there evidence of saving faith, but there's evidence of increasing lordship. Verse 10, trying to learn what pleases the Lord. It is our increasing commitment to lordship in Jesus Christ. Our level of lordship, if we've been a Christian for a year, is going to be very different from it is when we've been a Christian for 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. If our level of lordship is no different, it means there is no growth. It means there isn't any forward momentum towards 
a life that really and truly pleases the Lord. It is growth in goodness and righteousness and truth and the other Christian virtues that are mentioned all throughout the Bible. What you think about this? Think about how differently children attempt to please their parents as they age. You know, you have some kids that always want the praise and the adoration of mom and dad. And so they do the right thing. And as they get a little bit older, they seem to be a little less interested in pleasing mom and dad. You know, the teenage years. You know, they start to push a little bit. And they start to experiment a little bit. And if that goes unchecked, they become young adults who have not embraced the faith and give very little consideration to pleasing mom and dad. And that is indicative of growing up and being independent. We should always strive to live a life that brings honor to our parents. In our walk with the Lord, it isn't any different. We should always be striving to live a life that is always going to be pleasing to the Lord. Growing in our sanctification, growing in our lordship, growing in our holiness, increasing the reflection of light in the world around us. The fruit of lordship is what is produced by the light. So not only are we to be separate, we are also to expose sin. Don't you hear that? We are to expose sin. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Paul's restating what he's already said. But instead, even expose them. Now, it's the same command as earlier, but this added element of exposing sin and evil for what it actually is. Now, there's always a word of caution here. Because we are like does not give us the prerogative to kick down the doors in the lives of other people and say, you shouldn't, you aren't, you're not a Christian, you need to get right. That's not what we're talking about here. You're not the sheriff. You're not policing the lives of other people. But in our fellowship, in our relationships, we have the right, we have the obligation to expose sin for what it actually is. Our lives, when filled with goodness and righteousness and truth, will always, always be a confrontation to evil. Always. Make no mistake about it. When we ignore the sin around us, when we're not exposing the evil that we see, we condone it. By our silence, we might even promote it. And so we also always have to find this balance between being used by God to bring others under the authority of His Word and being self-righteous and judgmental. And so if there's ever a need to be confrontational with another person, it would always be wise for us to seek out others that we trust, who love the Lord and are wise and mature in the Lord, to get their advice and their input so that we aren't damaging relationships, but rather helping bring about restoration and resolution. So with this instruction that we have here to expose sin, the question to me is, why don't we do that more? Why aren't we willing to expose sin and evil when we see it? Well, letter A, I think generally speaking, we're pretty passive people. We assume that someone else is going to do this. We expect that someone else is going to confront it. And so it's kind of like, hey, we've got this big need, and 
if this knee doesn't get met, there's going to be some consequences to that. And so we look around the room and we go, oh, I'm sure somebody's going to deal with that. I don't have to. It's not really my problem. And so we'll do that with sin and evil around us, and sometimes even in the fellowship with believers, because we are generally passive. We expect someone else to deal with it, and perhaps we even assume that if I ignore it long enough, maybe it'll just kind of go away. You ever done that? Does it go away? It really doesn't. Letter B, not only are we generally passive, we don't take sin seriously. Sometimes we find those respectable sins, like Jerry Bridge would call them, Jerry Bridges would call them. We call those respectable sins not that big of a deal. Really not hurting anybody. No one's going to know. Kind of like a little white lie. Not, not really that big of a deal. Just kind of ignore it and let it go. So we don't take sin very seriously. We laugh and we joke and we make fun of these sinful activities. And so we kind of participate from arms length without really giving in. And so by participating in arms length, we're still participating and condoning that stuff. Letter C, which I think is probably as, as truthful as any of the others, is that we don't keep our own spiritual house in order to such a degree that we feel like we can say something to someone else. We feel hypocritical or judgmental to speak out against anything or to confront anyone over anything. And so there's a defection, there's, there's a distinction here between this ideal of expecting perfection in someone else's life and trying to nitpick them and being totally apathetic to seeing a brother or sister travel a path of sin and say, well, it's really not my problem. It really doesn't impact me. I'm sure someone else will deal with that. So if we are all of the same body, and if one of the members of our body is sliding out of path of sin, does it really hurt us? Well, yeah, it does. It may not hurt us directly, but it will certainly hurt us indirectly, most especially in the world of those people who know that person sliding into a life of sin is a professing Christian and goes to that church and associates with those people. It happens all the time. So the reason that we are to expose this sin is because these deeds are shameful. Light exposes evil. Light exposes evil. Verse 12, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And so these secret things are harmful and they create a deadly product. Thinking about a nuclear plant that has had a breakdown. The reactor has failed and nuclear radiation is just blowing out everywhere. What are you going to do? Well, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal. I'm sure someone will deal with that. They'll clean up before it gets to me, right? No, you would run for your life. You would flee from that because of the damaging effects of that. The explanation of that is the light exposes evil. Verse 13, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. The NIV reading expresses this just a little bit more clearly, and it says it is light that makes things visible. The idea is that when our thoughts and our words and our deeds are brought under the scrutiny of the truth of his word, they will be exposed for what they really are. And when the, when the light of God's word, that truth, exposes our sin, we have to acknowledge 
that it is truth, it is light that is exposing this evil or this sin that resides in what I think and what I say and how I live my life. If scripture exposes sin for what it really is, we as God's children will always want to turn away from it. And so there's always this challenge when we're reading God's word, or we're in a Bible study, or we're in a corporate teaching session like this. And when the word of God confronts our sin, the child of God should always say, I gotta get that fixed. I gotta get that right. That doesn't please God. The falsely professing Christian will say, it's really not that big of a deal. I don't know why they're harboring this. I don't know why they continue to talk about this and deal with this. Be concerned that that is your position when you read scripture and it exposes something in your life. That light exposes sin and you say, it's really not that big of a deal. Let me ask you this question. What does sin look like to God? Sin is despicable in the eyes of God. What does sin look like to us? You see, when you and I are confronted with our sin, what you ought to see is the cross and the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin so that I could be forgiven. I remember once when uh, my kids were younger. I don't know if they remember this or not. They probably will when I tell the story. It's always fun, right, kids? <laughs> so we had learned that our kids were lying about something. And I don't remember the specifics of what it was. But we had asked them repeatedly, and they were lying. And so I had heard this or seen this. I don't remember where this came about. So <clears throat> I got a box. And I went around to all the little trash cans in the house and I began to dump all the trash in there. Toilet paper rolls and dirty Kleenexes and just all that kind of junk. And I had a big box and I wrapped it up with pre-wrapping paper and a nice big bow. You guys remember this? And I said, hey, I got something for you. And man, they were excited. I mean, they were at the table on their hands and their elbows and knees ready. So go ahead and open And they ripped it open and pulled the top off and there was a box of trash. And they looked at me like... What kind of a bad joke is this? And that's when I confronted them with whatever the sin was, whatever the disobedience and the lying was in their lives. And the point was this. Our lives are to be a gift back to the Lord for what he has done for us on the cross. And when we allow sin to dominate our life, when we willingly give ourselves back to that which, with which we have been set free from, our gift to God is really a gift of trash to Him. Now, we would never really want to give that gift to anybody, especially our kids. We certainly wouldn't want to receive a gift of trash like that from somebody that we love. So why would we be willing to give that back to the Lord by allowing sin to go and shut it off? We have the question is we should. That brings us to this last part of our message, the call. The call here is to wake up. Verse 14, for this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And so primarily, this is a call to the lost. This is a call to the individual 
who may be participating in all the religious activity. It's a person who considers himself a Christian, but listens to these words and hears the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it is the call to wake up. It is to allow the light of Christ to shine on you so that you can be saved from your sin. You know, I've learned this after 25 years in the ministry. We assume a lot about people. They're here every week. They say the right things. They serve in certain areas. We're told that they give money. And we assume that because they do those things, they actually know the Lord and walk with the Lord. It would be a great tragedy to come to this verse and not say, evaluate your life in light of the truth of Scripture and wake up if you know you've never given your life to Christ. If you've never given your life to Christ, you are on the fast track to eternal separation for all of eternity. Hell, agony, pain, worse than we can ever imagine. The call is to the falsely professing Christian who says the right things but knows in their heart that they don't live a righteous life outside of the walls of the church. It is wake up. To the Christian who knows the Lord but walks with Him in a half-hearted manner. The command is the same. It is wake up. When the truth of God's Word illuminates our sin, there really is a single response, and that is confession. It is agreement with God that He is right and I am wrong. After we've confessed, we are to repent. Repentance signifies, I take very seriously this thing that your word has confronted me with. To do less than that ought to create a question in our hearts as to how serious we are about this thing we call walking with Christ. As you consider your life, Thank you.